Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning. It's hour two of Mornings with Carmen here on the 8th of February, 2023. One of the things that happened last night is that the President of the United States, Joe Biden, delivered the State of the Union address. He appealed um, he appealed for unity. Um, and this would be where you want to listen to everything a person says, not just the things that he says because he thinks the audience is bigger on that particular day or night than every other day or night. Um, You want to listen to what a person says consistently over time, um, behind closed doors and in front of cameras. Um, And his appeal for unity, for those who have been paying attention to what he has already been saying to Democrats behind closed doors on the stump. um, Yeah, the the appeals for unity fell a little... um, fell a little difficult last night. I'll just confess that. Uh, The president then also returned to a theme that he uh, loves to talk about, and that is restoring the soul of the nation. He frequently talks about the need to restore the soul of the nation, but he never actually defines that. And so I thought that one of the things we should do is um, understand what that is all about. Plato Um, Yes, Plato, as in, you know, a long, long time ago in a place far, far away, Plato uh, introduced this idea of the nation having a soul in the Republic, in which he stated that the state is infused with a soul, and he likened it to the soul of an individual person. Plato said, uh, must we not acknowledge that in each of us there are the same principles and habits which there are in the state, and that from the individual they pass into the state? And so what he's talking about there is that um, the the principles of a common people are derived from the principles that are inhabited in the individual people who constitute the whole. So when President Biden is saying that we need to restore the soul of the nation— Um, Is he not, at some level, making an appeal for personal renewal, a personal restoration of the personal soul of individuals in America who together constitute the whole? That's the only way I can understand a nation having a soul. Um, And so in saying that, um, I would say, yes, we need renewal. Um, But that only comes through individual people actually coming to an awareness of our need that we would be revived, renewed, restored. And all of those are Christian and biblical, um, not only ideas, but reality. The challenge in bringing forward a platonic idea into the conversations of the day, particularly for Christians, is that um, Plato was a dualist. He saw a clear demarcation or distinction between the flesh and the spirit. Um, and we don't want to be dualists. We, um, we don't 
dualism is is actually a heresy. So we don't want to lean too far into this idea. Um, ideas have consequences, and bad ideas have very real consequences in very real life. It's not as if there is the life of the mind, and that is somehow separated from the life in reality. Like, it's all... Um, uh, it, it's all of a piece. It's all of um, of a whole. Uh, 45 minutes into the State of the Union address, President Biden began castigating Republicans who initially he told, you know, to let's all work together in, um, in unity and bipartisanship. And that's what you're going to hear covered in the main mainstream media today. You're absolutely going to hear and see members of um, of the Republican Party, particularly who uh, are in the House of Representatives, actually heckling the president during the State of the Union address. You're also going to see the president respond to um, to their heckling. Uh, at one point, he actually, you know, like s- smiles at them and says, oh, I like I like a, a conversion. Um, and I like a conversion, too, by the way, just a conversion in a particular direction to Christ. Uh, he did address the issue of China and the threat that China poses to us. Uh, he said, if China threatens our sovereignty... We will act to defend our country, and we did. He's talking there about the, you know, shooting down of the of the spy balloon. Um, but the word sovereignty is in there, and that is a really great opportunity for Christians in the culture to talk about sovereignty. Who is actually sovereign? Who is our sovereign? It's an opportunity for us to talk about God's sovereignty and how national sovereignty is derived from God's um, sovereignty. It's an opportunity for us to talk about the eternal enduring nature of the kingdom of God and the relatively temporary temporal kingdoms of this world, including the one in which we now live. It's an opportunity for us to talk about stewardship, not ownership. Um, It's an opportunity for us to talk about citizenship and the kingdom of heaven, um, even though we are also citizens of particular nation states in the world. Um, In his finish the job litany, the president proposed a really uh, significant number um, of items, and we will return to those maybe at another point in time. But suffice it to say, we can't afford uh, to pay for what the president proposed in last night's speech. And so um, there are lots of really, really good ideas in terms of reforms that need to be made and the ways in which people in this country absolutely need to be cared for. I'm just not certain it's the government's responsibility to pay for it. And so I'm looking for opportunities on that list for the church to step forward and lean in and creative Christians to step forward and lean in where there might be entrepreneurial opportunity um, and opportunities for the church to just engage in ministry um, where people are clearly, clearly experiencing need. All right, uh, let's uh, let's end that uh, State of the Union conversation right there because Heather Zeiger is waiting in the wings and she is prepared to talk with us about the resurrection of the dodo bird. Scientists are plotting a resurrection. That seemed like a worthy of conversation today. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
Heather Zeiger is back, and I have saved for this conversation an article that uh, caught my attention because anybody plotting resurrection catches my attention. Scientists are plotting the resurrection of the dodo bird. Heather, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning, Carmen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, scientists plotting resurrection, that just in and of itself is a good talking point for Christians in the culture today. Um, tell us uh, what's going on here in terms of the potential of bringing back the dodo bird from extinction. Yeah, so this isn't the first animal that um, this company, Colossal Biosciences, has talked about bringing back. They've also talked about bringing back the woolly mammoth and the Tasmanian tiger. (laughs) What's interesting about the dodo bird, the dodo bird is kind of the the patron saint, the symbol of extinction, because um, it's within kind of written history when we saw the extinction of this bird. So apparently the very last one, I had to look this up, the last one was killed in 1681. Um, And they had concentrated at that point the dodo bird had concentrated in the island of Mauritius in the Indian Ocean, and the 17th century was a time of exploration. So we actually see the extinction of this of this large flightless bird. So the idea of bringing back the dodo bird, it's a bit symbolic in the sense of like, can we bring back animals that have become extinct? And so they're doing this by taking DNA that has been preserved from uh, from dodo bird remains. And this was preserved, I think, in Denmark is where they got this DNA. And so now with DNA technology, we can, use, we can find this very faint or very uh, little uh, amounts of ancient DNA and amplify it. And able, so they're able to sequence the dodo bird's DNA. And they've done that. They've been able to sequence the dodo bird's DNA. And then the next step is they then compare it to what they call the closest relative of the dodo bird. And when they say closest relative, they mean the most genetically similar animal. And in this case, it's in the pigeon family. And they compare the two to see, okay, what mutations in the genome are going to are distinctive of the dodo bird versus its closest genetic relative. And they have been able to do those two things. Of course, it's the step three that's the big deal here. Which is mutate the pigeon DNA in the precise ways that would produce a dodo bird. So basically, uh, here's what they do. And and this is an interesting experiment. It's one that they've done with chicken, with chickens before. But of course, chickens are highly studied. Pigeons and woolly mammoths and their closest relative is type of elephant are not as highly studied. So what they do is they're going to synthetically create that dodo bird DNA sequence. And then they're going to take the the pigeon DNA or uh, actually some cells from the pigeon, probably um, the early cells that form sperm and egg cells. So if they form germ cells, they're going to take out the pigeon DNA, put in the dodo bird DNA, and then those cells are going to form into those germ cells. And the idea is then they could produce a... Um, it really wouldn't be a copy of the dodo bird. It would be a kind of hybrid, but they would be able to produce something that was kind of a hybrid uh, type creature that was more like the dodo bird. That's the idea. There's a lot of criticism that, well, that, that step is a very technically difficult step. 
Yes, they've been able to do it with varieties of chicken species, but chicken is very well studied. <laughs> These aren't. Ch chicken is on everybody's plate. That's yeah, my, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, and there's a lot of, and Carmen, so there's a lot of criticism here, um, you know, and, and I think they're good points to bring up. As interesting as it is to maybe bring back a bird that we saw extinct and that we know that uh, human human actions cause that extinction. Um, one of the criticisms is, you know, there's been millions of dollars poured into this. Why not use that money to protect the hundreds of endangered species that we have today, uh, particularly endangered birds? But, you know, there's lots of endangered species today, which I think is a valid question of stewardship. Uh, another question that I think is a valid criticism is, you know, what does it mean when we destroy something in nature and then just say, hey, we'll just put it back together again? And so I, I think that's also a little bit of a valid question. Um, also the question of, well, animals aren't just their genetics. They're also their, they are also informed by their environment. And mm -hmm. animals learn from other animals. They learn from other animals of their kind. So what does it mean when you create just one of this kind? And then, of course, Carmen, for those of us that were uh, that were children or teenagers in the 1990s and we remember Jurassic Park, you know, I'm thinking of Ian Malcolm's quote, you know, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. And so, you know, that that, of course, is ringing in my head, particularly when we talk about bringing back things like woolly mammoths or tigers. The dodo bird is fairly innocuous. But then again, you know, what are the consequences of doing this? <clears throat> Yeah, uh, the the dodo bird seems less a threat than either the woolly mammoth or the Tasmanian tiger. Um, certainly, yeah. So those are, um, I think the ethical questions are the ones that Christians need to be prepared to talk about. I think the stewardship question is a really good one. Um, and I think that the question of recreation and resurrection are obviously stimulating words for Christians to engage with in terms of cultural conversation. So thank you so much for um, roaming around with us in this story. We're going to continue our conversation with Heather Zeiger in just a moment. We're going to talk about earthquakes, and we're going to consider the one that just happened in Syria and Turkey. Um, but we're going to just talk about the phenomenon of earthquakes in general as well. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks so much for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Hey, I'm Susie Larson. Hey, if you enjoy what you're listening to here, would you consider subscribing to other great faith radio podcasts like mine? Search Susie Larson Live at MyFaithRadio.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hit subscribe and have a great day. Continuing our conversation with Heather Zeiger. She's a science writer. She's an editor at bioethic.com. Uh, Heather, read us in from a scientific perspective on earthquakes, um, the phenomenon of earthquakes, and maybe any particularities about the one that recently occurred, well, the series of them now in uh, Turkey and Syria. Yeah, so the earthquake that occurred, uh, the several earthquakes that occurred in Turkey and Syria, what was interesting about this and um, tragic about it is just the magnitude of this earthquake. Um, so the first one that occurred near a large city in Turkey was about a 7.8 magnitude on the Richter scale. And so this is a scale that kind of, it's a logarithmic scale. So when we go from something like 6.4 to 7.8, 
that's a 10 times stronger scale. So I don't know if you've seen um, maybe on movies or whatever, you see those little needles and they're mm-hmm. bouncing back and forth. And so when the earthquake occurs, that needle is going to move back and forth and create these uh, bigger waves, basically these bigger lines. And so the Richter scale is based on the amplitude of those lines. Okay. So this was a fairly strong earthquake. Usually earthquakes that occur on land are not as strong as ones that occur in the water. So let's talk a little bit about why this earthquake occurred, where it did, um, and why that is. So just by way of reminder, the Earth's crust is divided up into these plates. It's um, actually not a complete solid sphere, right? There's segments. And when those segments rub up against each other, whether they're rubbing back and forth or one might go a little above and the other below, whenever those two plates rub up against each other, that's a fault line. And you're going to have earthquakes and volcanoes and things like that along that fault line. So famously, the Pacific Ocean is probably one of the largest tectonic plates. And so you have the ring of fire. Um, California gets earthquakes because it's along that ring of fire. You have um, volcanoes like in, uh, in Japan. So Turkey is actually at a a place where there are three tectonic plates that meet together. So there's a couple of fault lines there. So Turkey is used to getting earthquakes. That isn't the issue. The issue was the magnitude of this earthquake. And then the epicenter was near a large city. So this earthquake occurred on a, I believe it's the East Anatolian fault line. So that's one of the fault lines. The second earthquake and why it's not an aftershock is that a second earthquake occurred about nine hours later. It was about a 7.5 magnitude earthquake. And I think they're saying it's not an aftershock of the first earthquake because it was along a different fault line that was nearby. It was probably caused by that first earthquake, but it was actually on a different fault line. Uh, I don't remember the name. Oh, it's uh, the Alatolia fault, fault line. And I apologize for mispronouncing it. So Turkey's at kind of a triple point there where there are, th- there are three plates coming together. And what happens is when these plates come together, they're, they're very slowly rubbing against each other. But what happens is the stress builds up and then you have this major earthquake that occurs. When, um, when we think about earthquakes, I mean, you know, we know from a biblical perspective to expect them. Um, we know that we're going to hear about them. We know that they're going to continue to come. Um, this one is particularly devastating. We're talking about a place that's, you know, population uh, dense, um, where construction does not appear to be, you know, particularly um, earthquake resistant, um, and a place where it's in, it's very difficult for the world to surge a lot of resources because the scope, the magnitude of the disaster is so wide. Um I don't know what uh, when we think about how deadly this earthquake is um, and may prove to be, you know, like sort of where where does it fit in terms of um, deadly earthquakes in the world? I mean, we have a lot of focus on this one, but there are probably several that we've sort of failed to pay attention to along the way. Yeah. So keeping in mind that they are still trying to figure out the the death toll of mm-hmm. this earthquake. Um, so keeping that in mind, and I think the last numbers were something around 11,000. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, 
um, there have been much, much greater uh, earthquakes in the past. One that I noted, and um, I think some of us might remember in recent history, is in Japan in 2011, if we recall, that was an earthquake that started in the ocean and created a large tsunami um, that then hit a large city, killed thousands of people, and uh, caused a, a meltdown at the, I believe, the nuclear power plant in Fukushima. So <clears throat> that was a major earthquake. And again, when we're talking about major earthquakes and number of people that die, oftentimes it's in places that either have poor infrastructure or it's highly populated. So then the earthquake in Haiti, for example, that was a case where uh, it was high population, a very strong earthquake, but then also there wasn't, the structures didn't have the integrity to protect people. So I believe the Haiti earthquake, um, and I lost the year, but that one was also a very destructive mm -hmm. earthquake. Um, and then I think in Turkey in 1999, there was an uh, earthquake that occurred near Istanbul, which ended up killing around 18,000 people. So, so this earthquake is not one of the most destructive. Um, I believe one of the, the most destructive, or the, uh, I should say the strongest earthquake that has occurred on record was in Chile in 1960. And that was probably uh, one of the highest, uh, it wasn't the highest death toll but it, had the, it was the strongest magnitude recorded. So again, this is a very major earthquake. It's destructive because it's near um, a highly populated area. And it, especially as you get towards Northern Syria, you're hitting places that have, for whatever reasons, um, whether civil war or just uh, because of refugee displacement, you have people that are not in, in structures that are fortified or you have poor infrastructure. Um, the difficulty in this case is that it's also difficult to get supplies because some of the airport runways have been damaged from Absolutely. the destruction of the earthquake. So, and that's something to be in prayer about because obviously uh, lots of countries have said that they will provide aid, but the problem is getting it there right now. Yeah, and the right aid to the right people at the right time. It's a huge logistical challenge. Heather, thank you um, so very much for joining us. You guys can find Heather Zeiger online at bioethic.com um, or at her website, heatherzeiger.com. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. Today, as you just heard on Breakpoint, is the International Day of Prayer to Stop Human Trafficking. It's a good day for us to um, consider children and their needs, orphans the world around, um, a good day for us to consider our own needs and how those are fulfilled um, on the backs or through the work of others. Um, it's a good day for us to consider the resources that God has placed under our stewardship and how we use them and how other people are used in order that we can have access to the things that, um, that we use every single day. Um, who's dying today? Who's dying today so that you can live the way you want to live? Could you and I live more simply that other people could simply live? Like, I think that's a good question for us to ask. Go back and listen again to John Stone Street's 
breakpoint today. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, this is a really good day for us to consider not only our own needs, real needs, but the needs of others as well. Uh, Erica Anderson is going to join us next. Um, I appreciate her ministry in so many ways. And she's going she's gonna to join us to talk about um, her book, Leaving Cloud Nine. More importantly, she's going to join us to tell us who is Rick Sylvester and why does his testimony matter? That's up next on Mornings with Carmen. Erica Anderson um, is an author. Um, well, she's got a lot of things going on. You can check it all out at ericaanderson.com. I'm going to put it all in the show notes, all the links, but I want to get to the conversation about Leaving Cloud Nine. It is a book that Erica um, has written, and it's deeply personal. Um, Erica, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so Leaving Cloud Nine um, is a true story. It's a personal story. So let me just ask about the main character in the story. Who is Rick Sylvester? (laughs) <laughs> well, Rick Sylvester is my husband, uh, lucky enough for me that he is. And um, yeah, when I met uh, Rick 12, 13 years ago, um, we started dating and he started telling me the story of his life. And I was completely blown away by all the things he had been through. And as we started our life together, he he began to experience even more transformation. Um, and ultimately, we decided to start doing interviews and write everything down and turn it into a book. And, uh, you know, now it's out there in the world. And it's it's pretty cool. Um, so I, I want to kind of like go I want you to tell Rick's backstory and I want you to tell his mm-hmm. story of transformation because it is awesome. But I also just like want to have the very real conversation as a woman, as you were learning these things about him and about his past, did you have any fear? Hmm. You know, I did because, uh, you know, when I met him, there was a lot of, there were things, and I write about this in the book, there were things that were very broken in his spirit and in his heart. And it was easy to see that. And, um, you know, one of the things I, I say is that I saw past some of that hurt, which, you know, sort of developed itself into anger, sometimes rage, irrational thoughts and irrational actions sometimes, but there was something about it. And I really feel like this was God just giving me this beautiful wisdom and insight into who Rick is. Um, These things would happen. He suffers from bipolar disorder and depression and things like that. And it was like, God said to me, that's not the real him. Like, and I could see who he really was on the inside past all those hardened layers that had built up over the years, you know, layers of defensiveness of, you know, uh, freezing and fleeing and all the things that happen in, in the wake of trauma and um, childhood trauma. And I, I saw it and I, and I saw that beautiful sort of diamond, I guess, that he was diamond in the rough underneath. And God really gave me the ability to, to hold on to that, to see that in him and then to help him see that in himself and, and move towards a better life um, in the course of our relationship, which is sort of documented throughout the book and was actually happening really in real time in some ways as I was writing the book. I think that's um, that's a, a huge part of this story. Like you are 
a really essential character um, in this redemptive narrative. And I wanted to um, I wanted to start with a nod to that truth. Um, Leaving Cloud Nine is a testament and a testimony of God's goodness. Um, Talks about Rick's life. Every character has a backstory. So, Erica, I'm wondering if you will tell us a little bit of Rick's backstory so we can understand the tremendous redemptive power of God in his life. Yeah, so so he grew up in um, mostly Arizona and, um, you know, Leaving Cloud Nine, that's the name of the trailer park he grew up in. And that's how we came up with the title, Leaving Cloud Nine. Uh, so cut, kind of play on words there. But yeah, he grew up in, very poor in a trailer park, often uh, living in hotels uh, temporarily for random nights at a time. His mother was a severe alcoholic. She was a drug addict. Um, he never knew his dad. Um, there were all kinds of men in and out of the house. Um, he suffered nine of the 10 adverse childhood experiences known as ACEs, if anybody's familiar with that. So that's like, you know, divorce, seeing domestic violence, um, you know, experiencing all the traumas that you can experience as a child. And um, he was often, you know, a couple things that I would mention, he and his little sister, they were often left alone at home as very small children by themselves. Um, They were taken by CPS multiple times um, and often sent to live with their grandma um, before their mom could get them back, she'd have to get clean and go through classes and she'd get them back. And then, you know, the whole process would repeat itself. And so he grew up just fearful, um, never feeling secure about anything and never really knowing, you know, what he could trust or, you know, that he would ever be happy in, in, you know, and so, so he went through this and, and kids that go through this kind of trauma. Um, I mean, if you look at the statistics, it's not good. Um, it is, you know, they become addicted, they become homeless, they become suicidal, and, you know, they become uh, violent domestic violent partners, all of these things that could have happened. And he will tell you looking back that he didn't know it then, but he really sees the hand of God on his life protecting him from many things. Um, now, the result of a lot of this was what did result, which was depression, anxiety, so extreme social anxiety, um, PTSD. He was diagnosed with PTSD, bipolar disorder. All of these things were a result of his childhood, but um, he has always been a fighter and he was fighting through them even before he came to know the Lord. Um, but once his relationship with God became real, um, things moved at a much faster pace and he was able to really find so much healing um, through that relationship with God. We're talking with Erica Anderson. We're talking about her husband, Rick. Uh, It's a story that she tells in Leaving Cloud Nine. Um, It is, uh, it's available, it's available everywhere that you get books, but you can connect directly with Erica on her website, ericaanderson.com. I'll put all the links in the show notes today. Um, Neither Rick um, and certainly not Erica are the main characters of this story. God is, and we want to talk about God as the hero of Rick's story up next. If you're if you're looking for um, if you're looking for a story of hope, a story of redemption, a story that conveys the steadfast love of God and His power to deliver us from the most devastating of um, life circumstances, consider leaving Cloud Nine. 
We'll continue this conversation in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio, tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. We're talking with Erica Anderson. We're talking about leaving cloud nine. The subhead of the book is the true story of a life resurrected from the ashes of poverty, trauma, and mental illness. It is the story of her husband. Um, it's really uh, God's story of the redemption of an individual, and it's very profound. Um, Erica, one of the things that you write um, is this. The day he began praying for healing and reaching out to God is the day it began to get better. The only thing required um, that little bit of faith and a willingness to humble himself. Um, I think that there are probably people who are asking, um, can it really be that simple? Is it really, is it really just a matter of turning toward God? Yeah, you know, it's not easy. I will say that simple and easy, I think maybe are two different things. And Mm. so for Rick, I think um, he didn't consider himself a Christian when we met. He didn't go to church. He hadn't been to church in probably a decade when we met. Um, And so he, I think what he did was he opened his heart to the possibility that God could do something. Mm. And it started honestly by him going to church with me. Um, I didn't even ask him. He just said, Hey, I'll go to church with you. I'm like, okay. Um, and so I think just by sort of opening himself up to the possibility that there could be something there for him, that was the very first step to allowing God in. It's like, you know, get, get, open the door, like knock, you know, seek and you will find. And so he wasn't even so much seeking as he was opening the possibility. And so, um, that began and, um, God began working on his heart. The Holy spirit began working on his life. And I've never seen anything like it really, um, since then, but there was one particular circumstance that happened. Um, I write about this in the book, a night of drinking where just an incident happened and, It was that night where he was like, I cannot live like this anymore. And he pretty much that next day kind of said to God, I'm, I'm, I'm turning my life over to you. And that was the moment that things really began to change for him, where he really began to find healing about his mom, um, healing from his social anxiety. He doesn't have that anymore. He couldn't speak in a group. And by the time this book came out, he was talking in front of our entire church. I mean, that is a miracle. God healed him from that. And I've never seen anything like it. And so while he still, of course, grapples and deals with some of these um, mental illness things, like this might be a lifelong struggle, that that is the imperfect and fallen world that we live in. He has found so much peace and healing um, in the process of his relationship with God. And um, he is a dedicated uh, you know, reader of the Bible, um, very became a very spiritual person to where he's thinking about this stuff on a daily basis all the time. His life completely turned around 
And there's nothing I can say that, you know, there's nothing I did. It's clearly the power of the Holy Spirit. And I've never seen a real life miracle as much as I have in his life right in front of me. And sometimes I just have to like pinch myself because I can't even believe it. So um, one of the things that I'll observe, and this is about you, um, and you help us see this in the book. And so I'll just make this observation. Like, you were a safe person. Mm. You, you, because of the way you loved him, because of the way um, you didn't leave, because of the way you, whatever your posture was, right, your posture in his life opened up this possibility of healing and hope that as if those were even possible, like it, you're, you're offering us not just a template of hope in the book, um, but a, a, a template in you, in the, in the person of Erica Anderson. And I, I think that's an important thing to acknowledge and recognize. And maybe you can help us. Like, let's say I love a person who is oppressed living like in oppression to the past. Um, mm-hmm. How do I become a safe person? Like, how do I take, the posture that you have taken. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think when it comes to, if you're in like a relationship where you're thinking about getting married, for example, I would definitely obviously pray about that first. I think it can be um, a risk to get married to someone who's dealing with a lot of this stuff. So you want to make sure that you have God with you. And that is something that I spoke with God about, you know, I was like, it's a little scary because it's not easy. Right. But I, I felt that I got God's blessing and, you know, his moving to, to move forward with our relationship. But what I would say is we educating yourself. I mean, that was, that's where I started was I was like, okay, he has bipolar disorder. He has this childhood trauma. And I started reading books. I still have these books, like the bipolar spouse. Um, what is it like to be the spouse of a person with bipolar? And as I was writing the book, of course, I was doing tons of research on childhood trauma and how that affects people. And when you do that, you're better able to understand their reactions, which are sometimes irrational and don't make any sense. And you begin to learn that you don't necessarily respond to someone with this kind of trauma and reactions as you would like a person that doesn't have trauma. Um, it, it's almost like learning a new language of of how to deal with some of these things. And doing that, you become a safe person. And once he told me when he was really sort of more in the less of a healed space, he was like, you have to think of me sometimes as a disabled person in, in this sense, like a person that can't, you know, a person in a wheelchair, um, they can't walk. I'm a person mm. that is emotionally damaged and I cannot process things. I just can't do it. And so you have to have that space and grace and empathy and understanding to be that safe person. And sometimes it's hard because you're like, nobody should talk to me like that, or I shouldn't have to deal with that. But it's like having the humility, understanding the patience, being there for someone no matter what. Um, and I think that goes a long way. Yeah, that that's just, it's just really helpful. And you, um, you operate out of love and that's just so evident throughout um, you emphasize the importance of getting the story out. Um, yesterday uh, here, we talked with Brad Hambrick and his book, Angry with God. And he starts with like the importance of learning to articulate the pain. I think that is um, the same thing you're saying when you're talking about the importance of getting the story out. Um, but that is a place where we have to tread pretty gently initially, um, because I don't want to demand that a person share more than they're ready to share. Can you just talk about treading tenderly in all of this? Yeah. I mean, I think that 
this was for Rick. Um, he is not like a public person. Like I am, you know, the person that's like on social media and I'm out there and I'm writing and he is just a very private person. He's not out there, but he felt compelled by God to share this story, his story in full. Um, and I think sometimes it's made him feel uncomfortable, but at the same time, he feels confident that this is something God had for him to do. And so in doing that, um, I think there are so many pieces of his story that there are so many different kinds of people that relate to it um, and have found, you know, sort of that me too feeling, um, reading the story, feeling like they're not alone. And so, yes, I think everyone is different in how they choose to share. Um, but I think having those safe people, like you said, we everybody needs those safe people that they can talk about their stories with. Um, and one of the things I talk about in my, actually my other book that we talked about last time is how I want churches to be a safer place for vulnerability where you can walk in um, with all of your things and all of your crap and just throw it on the floor and just be who you are and get it out there and feel loved. And so I think we need to be creating those spaces as much as we can wherever we go. And the more people can educate themselves about what their loved ones, friends and family members maybe have been through so that they can respond in a loving way, the better. Um, and so just sort of reading, reading the signs when you're talking to someone and making sure they know that you are safe. Yeah, Erica Anderson, author of Reason to Return. We're talking today about um, her initial book, Leaving Cloud Nine. It's the very personal story um, of her husband, Rick, and the way that God has worked very miraculously in his life to redeem him from a, a very oppressive and complicated past. It's a Wonderful testimony and testament. This would be a great book, not only for you to read, but for you to read with someone else. Um, anytime we read a true story of redemption, it creates the possibility and opportunity for people to enter into conversations that they might otherwise um, not enter into. So I uh, encourage you to pick up a copy of Leaving Cloud Nine. Uh, Erica, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, you connect connect directly with uh, Erica at ericaanderson.com. We'll put all the links in the show notes today. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge. This is Faith Radio. You need to take a deep breath right now. I do. Let's just take a deep breath. Like slow, that slow inhale, exhale breath. You know, not like cold stethoscope on your back, uh, deep breath, but like deep breath. Um, just acknowledging my humanity today, my um, fragility, my nature as a child. My nature as a creature. Just taking a deep breath today. Today's going to um, have a lot going on in it. And in every moment, I'm just going to encourage you to take a deep breath and find yourself securely held in the hands of a loving God. Like, just find yourself there today. Under his everlasting wings or in his everlasting arms, under his shelter, in his protection, um, at his right uh, at his right hand, like just find yourself there today. He's closer to you than your next breath. 
So take a deep one. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.